Well, if you haven't turned there, uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. I can't uh, think of a better place to be than with the people of God uh, gathered around the Word of God. And uh, it is, it's a joy, even though this is the first time I'm meeting most of you, uh, it's a joy to be here with you and a great privilege to be able to open the Word of God with you. Uh, and I can't think of a uh, better passage to be in this morning. I suppose if I thought long enough, I could. Uh, it's like somebody who says, oh, this is a really good passage. Well, isn't every passage a really good passage if you uh, know the God who speaks the words of that passage? But it is a great joy to be with you in John chapter 4 this morning. And uh, as I was thinking and preparing, as God was leading me in my thoughts about this passage, I uh, just wondered if uh, if you have ever been taken by surprise. Now, sometimes surprises can be a negative thing. Uh, some of us are more prone to like surprises than other people. Uh, but I don't want you to think of a negative experience here. I want you to think of an experience that brought incredible wonder and joy. That's what we have in this passage. And uh, I can think of a time in my own life years ago, I mentioned we adopted some children from Russia, and uh, I grew up at the height of the Cold War. I can remember the 1980s. I was sitting there in high school with a, uh, a friend of mine next to me, and he had a U.S. News and World Report sitting on his uh, desk. And uh, that was a, a very well-known magazine. And uh, on the front cover, it was comparing the armaments of the United States with those of the Soviet Union. And uh, I don't remember if one was uh, winning over the other at the time, but uh, it was a pretty scary prospect to consider the vast array of weapons, uh, of destructive force that could be unleashed if all of this went to hell, so to speak. And uh, as I looked at that cover, I just thought, this is an impossible situation. Now, fast forward the video 20 years, and there we are. We're in Russia, and we're about ready to adopt two children. And I said to one of the couples uh, that was with us at the time, they were there to adopt a single child, and I said to them, isn't this amazing? <laughs> right now, we're not parents, and uh, we're going to walk into that court, and as we come out of that courtroom, we're going to be declared parents, and we'll have these two children. I said, isn't that just amazing? Aren't you blown away by that? And he said, uh, well, probably only half as much as you. <laughs> he was referring to the fact, obviously, they were only adopting one. We were adopting two. But I remember the, the sense of wonder and awe. I never would have imagined myself even being in Russia, let alone bringing part of Russia home with me. And uh, I remember the time as well that as we took them out of the orphanage and we got into a car, then we got onto a train, eventually we'd get on a plane, but we sat, uh, we were in a sleeper car, and uh, we sat our two children down on the bench, the, the bed there, and we turned around to say goodnight to our translator, and he gave us that customary, lock this door and do not open it until I come back in the morning. And so we locked the door, and we turn around, and we look at these two little kids. Now, we didn't have children before this, and these toddlers are sitting there staring up at us, and we're looking down at them, and I'm not sure who was more surprised, more in awe. But uh, it is that kind of surprise, a far greater magnitude of surprise that we meet here in John chapter 4. Uh, it's full of surprise, full of wonder. And all of it is here declaring this very amazing truth. 
And that is that Jesus is the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world has come. Imagine this. I think of that uh, that uh, Christmas uh, song, O Holy Night. It says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining. It means uh, it was wasting away in sin and error. Long lay the world in sin and error. And that is the feeling you get when you read the Old Testament, don't you? Year after year after year passes. The weight of the world's sin just keeps building up. And you feel the force of it until finally on that day when Jesus is presented in the temple. There's Simeon there. I can almost see him with a tear in eye. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. In other words, he's saying, there's nothing left. There's nothing more that could be of a greater magnitude. No greater surprise could there be than this reality. The Savior has come. And so we find it here in this story that begins with a woman of Samaria. Now, as we enter this passage, uh, it's probably good just to think back a little bit about the way this book opens. Uh, you'll recall in your series that as we open this book, that we meet there one who shares life with the Father, one who comes to give that life to others. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him not anything made that was made. Isn't that a remarkable statement? Nothing in all the universe exists apart from him. Everything that is in the universe, it flows from him. No wonder he then goes on to say, what? In him was life. Yeah? (laughs) Can you imagine uh, way, way back in the pages of time when God says, let there be light. And suddenly, there's light. He marches through those days of creation and it all comes into being, into order. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. And so down in verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. That is, this one in whom is life, that life itself is the light of men and his mission is to enlighten everyone. And so in John 4, we meet one he has enlightened. Or we can think about the opening pages here, and we see that uh, not only does Jesus share in life the life of the Father and give that life, but he shares in his glory, and he reveals that glory. Life and glory. And so it tells us in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this becomes a predominant theme in the book of John, Jesus unveiling the Father's glory. So you've already seen the uh, the wedding feast of Canaan, this first of sign miracles where uh, Jesus' glory is unveiled and many begin to believe. The disciples believe. They put their trust in him. And here in John 4, we see he has come to give life to enlighten every man. We see the unveiling of the Father's glory uh, before our very eyes. So we see that John can write then, truly, in chapter 3, verse 16, he can write, For God so loved the world 
that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him would have life and life everlasting. Or we can read in John 3, 30, 35, and 36, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Truly, He has come to manifest God's glory. He has come to give His life, and He gives it to all who believe. And that message is illustrated so abundantly in the passage that's before us. So we want to look at that passage with this backdrop in mind. John 4 unveils the glory, it unveils the life, it declares to the reader in clear and very surprising terms that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And that as the Savior of the world, he gives life to all who truly believe. This is not only a message for the Samaritan woman, for the Samaritan townspeople, for the disciples, for this official whose son is dying. This is a message for you and me today. Jesus is the Savior of the world, and as the Savior, he gives life to all who truly believe. So I want to look at these two ideas, the Savior of the world giving life to all who believe. First, he's the Savior of the world. There are three episodes that occur in the first part of this chapter, and each of them keeps testifying to this fact. Each is building one upon the other, and alone, on their own, and together, they shout this truth that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Look at this conversation with uh, the woman in verses 1 to 26. Uh, we notice here that Jesus, uh, he learns that the Pharisees had heard that he's making and baptizing disciples, verse 1, but it's really not Jesus himself, it's his disciples. But nonetheless, this becomes a trigger for him to leave Judea and depart for Galilee. Now, if you look back on the couple of chapters here, you notice he was in Galilee, he performed the sign miracle for the wedding feast at Canaan. But then he goes down to Jerusalem uh, in chapter 2, verse 13, to celebrate the Passover. And uh, there's some very interesting things that happen there along the way. From Jerusalem, he goes into the Judean countryside, which is where Jerusalem is located. It's that very region. And he is ministering there, but from there he returns. Now, we'll come back to this a little bit later. But he returns, and the trigger for this return is a interaction with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are seeing something going on, and it prompts Jesus to leave. So he starts to make the journey back to Galilee, which means he must pass through Samaria. Now, Some scholars here would say that this, uh, this word that he must pass through, uh, it's a word of necessity. He has to go through it. They would see in this that this is a God divinely sending him through Samaria for the purpose of this uh, conversation. Others may just simply see it as a geographical necessity because between Judea and the region of Galilee in the north, there is Samaria. The only way through, unless you want to take a long route around going over the Jordan River, up the, uh, the eastern side and then back across the Jordan, uh, would be to go through this region of Samaria. Either way, I think we can still agree that this conversation is in God's divine appointment 
And Jesus is on this journey through, and at the very hottest part of the day, when you would sit down to rest, you'd forego all work. He has a very interesting encounter with this Samaritan woman. He comes to a place uh, which has a rich historical heritage. It is a piece of land. It is a well that was passed down from the days of Jacob. And the Samaritans enjoyed drawing water from this well. It was a very deep well, which plays into the story that uh, we're about to see. But from this, we learn two very defining lessons. We learn what kind of savior Jesus is. We learn what his ministry is like. We learn what it means to save. It's all here for us in the unfolding of this story. And the first lesson is that Jesus alone satisfies our thirst with eternal life. I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself as thirsty or had an experience of thirst. Uh, I remember this feeling of thirst uh, one time very vividly when I was cutting the grass. Do you cut grass here in Singapore? Do you work outside? (laughs) Some of you are gardeners, perhaps. I know there's some beautiful gardens all throughout Singapore. I tell my friends when I come to Singapore, it feels like driving through a garden. That's the best description I can give, and it's a wonderful place. But uh, the interesting thing is when you work outside in the heat, you feel all of the life going out of you, and you need to be replenished with water. If you don't, you will eventually die. Uh, So this experience of thirst is something we know physically. One time I was in a country in Southeast Asia that uh, needed to be a bit security conscious there, and um, we had gotten done with a training of pastors. We were studying the book of Mark together, and uh, the, the pastor came up to me afterwards and said, can we talk? And in his broken English, uh, with a look on his face, the only way I can describe this look is to say it reminded me of somebody who hadn't had a meal to eat in about 40 days, and uh, they They were so satisfied with what they had, but they weren't sure if they were going to get another meal to come. Can you picture that with me? Somebody who's just eaten and been very satisfied, but they wonder, am I going to have anything in the future to eat? And so he said to me a couple of things. He said, first of all, about the training, he said, we need this so much. Just this deep burden in his soul, a hunger, a thirst for the word of God. Have you ever had that feeling? Sometimes I've been there where the pastor is preaching, he's opening up the word of God, and I just feel like the word is feeding my soul. It is, it is touching me. It is ministering at the deepest levels to the parts of my heart. And I want to say, yes, I love this Lord. Thank you. Thank you for feeding me, for satisfying my thirst. And this woman comes to Jesus, and Jesus is sitting there waiting for her. Jesus alone satisfies our thirst. He starts in a very startling way. He just turns to the woman, and he says to her, give me a drink. Isn't that surprising? Well, apparently the woman thought it was surprising. You see, the wonder of this this news that Jesus satisfies our thirst is that it is for all. Think about where you've been. Uh, Jesus had left Nicodemus not too long ago. He was with a religious ruler. That's where you expect Jesus to be, with a religious ruler. 
And he spoke to him about many things. He spoke to him about the need to be born again. And, uh, and yet, here is Jesus with somebody, not of the religious order, but somebody of the world. Somebody, you might argue, from the lowest parts of the world. Uh, this, this woman, in many respects, would be invisible to most of us. We wouldn't even recognize her. She was a woman. In that day and age, uh, men didn't talk to women. In that day and age, there was a prayer that the, uh, the Pharisees and the rabbis, the teachers of the law, would often pray, God, I thank you that I am not a woman. I don't exactly understand that prayer myself, but that was a prayer of the day. Uh, she was from Samaria. This was a part of the world that uh, you would not think highly of if you were among the religious in Israel at that day. Uh, the, the Samaritans were kind of a half-breed of people. Uh, they were people from the northern kingdom of Israel who had intermarried when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. They uh, mingled that population with Assyrians, people from various parts of their kingdom. So these were half-breeds. Of course, in Jewish teaching in the Old Testament, they were not to intermarry in this way. And so they were looked down upon by the Israelites as being Samaritans. They didn't worship in the right place. We find out later that they worshiped at Mount Gerizim, not Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And so it was a corrupted people from the perspective of the Jews. And she was also a woman that had very little virtue, it would seem, even by Samaritan standards. She had been married five times, and now she was with one who was not her husband. And so for most of us, she would have been invisible. We wouldn't have looked to her as someone of worth. In fact, I think the disciples, there's some of that here. Later on in the passage, verse 27, it says, they came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. They marveled at it. But no one said, what do you seek to the woman? Or why are you talking with her to Jesus? They just marveled at it. Like, this is odd. What's he doing here? And so to this one comes the wonderful Savior, the good news, the good news that her thirst can be quenched. And uh, from here, the woman retorts back, understandably, uh, how is it? You, would you ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews, they have no dealings with the Samaritans. But Jesus won't let it go. He's quick to respond to her. And uh, he responds to her in a very puzzling way to the woman, but uh, you can see Jesus isn't backing down at all. He says to her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Isn't that remarkable? He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking you, you would have turned the whole thing around you'd have asked the other way. You see, the wonder of this good news is that it's rooted in one who is able to deliver a gift that comes from above. You see, this is about the gift and the giver. Jesus drives to who he is and he drives to the gift that God is presently giving. Uh, He is the one that he speaks of in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, that is me, if you knew me. And it's clear that the woman gets this. Uh, she says to him in verse 11, 
Uh, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and lives, uh, and drank from it himself and did his sons and his livestock. You see, what what she's saying is, are you greater than Jacob? Your claim seems to be pretty alarming if you knew who it is that says to you, give me a drink. Uh, Jacob is greater than you, is he not? And uh, you're claiming to have some kind of a gift. Uh, Jacob gave us this well. You have something from God that's greater than this? Jacob gave us this well. He drank from it. His sons, his livestock drank from it. We've been drinking from it for hundreds of years. This is a precious gift. Of course, in a country that uh, is very arid and dry and hot, uh, water is life itself. Surprised to find out that many African tribal languages, the same word for water is the same word for life. That's how closely these two ideas are linked. Are you greater than our father, Jacob? What gift do you really have to give? She struggles to understand both the gift and the giver, but it's from here that Jesus makes an even more outrageous claim. He tells us in verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, here we learn more of the wonder of this good news is that it satisfies our thirst and it satisfies it abundantly and forever. See, there's both a quantitative and a qualitative aspect to eternal life. I think we sometimes understand the uh, the the quantitative a little bit better. Eternal, well, that, that must mean it's forever, right? But it's also a qualitative aspect to this eternal life. And both of these are drawn out here. I love the way he says this. Uh, he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty, and some translations add, forever. Never thirsty forever. So twice, uh, you will not be thirsty again. And just so you understand this, I mean, again, forever. You see the emphasis, the punctuation, the exclamation. And then the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The qualitative aspect of this that is here is this water, it starts as a drip, it goes to a stream, it goes to a rush, and it's so overwhelming. It wells up to eternal life. And to this, the woman can't turn it down. She says, give me this water to drink. She doesn't understand it all, but she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You see where it has come? It has moved from Jesus asking for her to give him a drink to this woman now saying, I want what you have to offer. Please give me this drink. And throughout it all, Jesus is saying that he alone as the Savior of the world can satisfy our thirst, which is really a thirst for eternal life. There's a famous uh, composer 
and uh, orchestral conductor Leonard Bernstein. I don't know if you know that name. He's no longer alive, but uh, when I was growing up, he was quite well-known, and he wrote a uh, musical called The West Side Story. And there's a wonderful song there. It's a love song, if you like love songs. Uh, I know that some of the women probably relate to that more than the men, but uh, I have a soft spot in my heart for love songs. And uh, in this song, it says, there's a place for us somewhere, a place for us, a place of quiet and rest. The song's called Somewhere. You see what Bernstein was tapping into? Uh, he was tapping into that something beyond this world, something beyond mere physical water. There's something more. There has to be, he's saying. There has to be something more. There has to be something that satisfies the soul and its deepest longings. And Jesus is bringing it on right here. I have a water for you. I have a water that will satisfy your thirst. You will never be thirsty ever again, forever. And it will well up in you a spring of water to eternal life. This is what he gives us. But there is a second lesson here in Jesus being our Savior, and that is this, that he alone delights our hearts with God himself. And the second is connected to the first, that that satisfaction of the soul with eternal life is none other than a hunger and a thirst for God himself. And Jesus as Savior of the world brings God to us. That is the wonder of the gospel. Look here briefly with me. He, Jesus pushes to a deeper level in verses 16 and following. He says to her, go call your husband and come here. Now, this isn't intended to, uh, to put salt into a wound or to uh, drive the knife deeper down into her soul. It's really intended to help her see that he has something more to offer than mere physical water. Her thoughts are still on water. She doesn't want to have to come back to Jacob's well, right? She wants to be able to be free of coming back again. But her understanding is still partial. And so Jesus pushes her to this deeper level. This word is meant to help her see that she has a misplaced thirst It's a thirst in something that will never satisfy. Did it satisfy her to go to husband two? How about husband three? Maybe four? Five? I don't think so, because there was another who was not even her husband. Isn't that the way we are with uh, life itself? We're looking for something to satisfy us. We chase after one thing, and then it's the next, and then the next. All the while, our deepest longings are going unmet. So Jesus pushes her to a deeper level. He wants her to see her misplaced thirst. You will never find satisfaction so long as you are pursuing it yourself. You need a Savior who can come and meet your deepest thirst. No form of religion is going to do it. That's where she goes next in verse uh, 19, she says to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Some see her as trying to distract from the issue at hand. 
But I think she didn't quite yet have the vocabulary to be in the same discussion that Jesus was in. It's understandable, but yet she is still in the same place she was before. And so Jesus responds without missing a beat. He takes the woman's response and he leads the conversation right back to where he intended to take it all along. Notice how he calls her to a new response. He says in verse 21 that the time has changed. The hour is coming, he says. That's interesting language, isn't it? And then look it down at verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here. He ups the ante. What he is saying is that there was a time in the past, but there is a new time now. And in just a few moments, he's going to declare to her, I am the Christ. And that makes all the difference in the world. The time has changed. And in this new era, the place no longer matters. Look at verse 21 and 22. He says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now he trumps her in verse 22, doesn't he? He says, salvation is from the Jews, so we've got you there. But in reality, verse 21, he's saying, it doesn't matter whether it's in Mount Gerizim. It doesn't matter whether it's on Mount Jerusalem. The place doesn't matter because something far greater has now come. And so he tells us what that is. In this new era, the only thing that matters and satisfies is to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The logic here is really quite uh, impeccable. Verse 23 and 24. Notice how he says this. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You'll notice that both at the beginning, at the end of these two verses, you have a similar statement. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Verse 23. Then down in verse 24. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The hour is now coming. It's now here. True worshipers worship in spirit and in truth, right? But in between that is some very precious theology. God is spirit, says verse 24. That's why those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And then in verse 23, he says, the father is seeking such people to worship him. Isn't that amazing? The father would seek people. The father would seek her. The Father would seek the Samaritans, the disciples, others, you and me. The Father is seeking those. So often we think of God at a distance, and certainly he's exalted above all. He is to be revered. He is to be honored. But there's this beautiful truth that he also draws near. He is seeking those who will worship him. He is seeking you this morning that you would worship him in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Well, the best that we can do with this is to understand it in terms of the light of John, what we've already seen, what's yet to come. What we find with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 is that uh, Jesus says to him, chapter 3, verse 5, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. To worship God in spirit and truth is to worship him from a changed heart. That is the only thing that is going to satisfy. To worship him in spirit is to worship him in that God-transformed heart which has brought new life to the soul. To worship him in spirit and in truth. Apart from that, the rest is meaningless. It doesn't matter where you go, where you walk, what rules you follow. None of that matters. It's the heart, the changed heart wrought by God's spirit that matters. And so we worship him. And this is what he is seeking. Those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, this is just the conversation with the woman. There's so much more here, isn't there, to unpack. Very quickly, let's look at the explanation to the disciples and then the declaration of the people. In verse 31, the disciples are urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he speaks to them in this uh, secretive language. He's saying, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See the fields, they are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What we see here is that Jesus, as the Savior of the world, the one who comes to satisfy our thirst, the one who leads us to God himself is the way of satisfying that thirst. This is all that he is about. It is his mission. He'd been on a long journey. He's there in the heat of day. Presumably still hasn't had that drink of physical water. The disciples come back with food. He still has not eaten. And he shows them his singular ambition I have food to eat that you don't know about. And then he tells us what it is. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You got to like a savior like that, don't you? He is so bent on being the savior of the world that nothing will distract him. Nothing will keep him from bringing this to you and to me. And so he calls his disciples to an urgency. He tells them, wake up. Wake up and recognize the time. The fields are, are ripe unto harvest. Don't mess around with lesser things. They are ready for harvest. He tells them, wake up. Wake up and experience the joy that is being unleashed here. He tells them, wake up. Wake up and play your part. I've called you into this. I sent you, verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now is the time. These fields are ripe 
unto harvest. He is the Savior of the world. But then we see it finally in this declaration coming from the Samaritan woman and the people. It is this grand testimony. As the disciples return in verse 27, they marvel that he's talking with this woman. But then the woman leaves her water jar. Isn't that a wonderful um, picture? She leaves the water jar. She had come to be satisfied with physical water that she would get out of Jacob's well. But she casts that aside. She runs back into the city and she exclaims to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, when you read over that without knowing the conversation behind it, is this a witness? Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. But all that I ever did is pregnant. It's full of meaning. It's full of the previous conversation. It's in that light that she is speaking to them. And it leads her to exclaim in this question, can this be the Christ? Of course, Jesus had told her just prior that's precisely who she is, or he is. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior. But then notice how this affects the Samaritans. Verse 30, they went out of the town and they are coming to him. And then verse 39, many Samaritans from that town, they believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Isn't that beautiful? Her statement to them, come see a man, is uh, echoing what we see back in the earlier pages of John's gospel. A couple of John the Baptist disciples, they come to Jesus and they want to know where he is staying. And he says, come and you will see. And then we know one of them is Andrew, and he goes to Peter, and he brings him into the fold. And then we know one of them is Nathaniel, and Nathaniel goes out, and he says to Philip, we have found the Messiah. Philip says, how can that be? He says, come and see. It's an invitation into this discipleship of following Jesus. And so she goes back to the townspeople, gives testimony to the Christ. Then they come out, and they believe because of what she has said, But then it goes much further. It tells us in verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. He stayed there two days. And then many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. What an awesome expression at the end of a couple days. They had not been with him that long, but they were convinced by what they heard, not just because the Samaritan woman told them about it, but because they had investigated and they saw in him the Lord's Christ. We have heard, we have seen, we believe. And this is the kind of effect we see that Jesus has on many That day, there were many from the town of Samaria that heard him, that saw him, that believed and followed him. And so the chapter goes on to show us another account, the account where it tells us now that he gives life to all who genuinely believe his word. He's the savior of the world. He gives life to those who believe. At first, it may appear that Jesus is rude, 
That's not the intent of this passage either. The backdrop to this is that when Jesus had gone to the Passover feast, that uh, the, the Pharisees began to demand signs of him. And some of the people who had seen the, the miracle at the wedding feast in Canaan, they were down in Jerusalem for this Passover. They were seeing this demand for signs. They were seeing Jesus as a, a miracle worker. And so we learn in the previous uh, passage, chapter 2, verse 23, that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. In other words, Jesus sees that outward belief, but sees through also to the heart and is questioning that belief. What kind of belief is it? Is it the belief in a kind of Savior that uh, is a user's belief? where you can stand above and you can select which parts and at what time it's convenient to follow him? Or is it the belief of a receiver that bows beneath and simply trusts and obeys the Savior's words? And that's what this miracle brings out for us. Notice Jesus' harsh rebuke, verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That is said to all who are present there. But the man persists, says, sir, come down before my child dies. And so Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. And so he believes and he obeys. Isn't that wonderful? Just as John three thirty six tells us, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. Believe and obey the word of the Son. And that's what this man does. And he's so interested that he checks with his servants the exact hour that the fever left his son. Isn't that fascinating, the way the chapter ends? And it tells us in verse 53, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And what does he do? Verse 53, he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. In this miracle, this man sees past the sign to this truth that Jesus is the Savior of the world. You know, it's pretty easy for us to come to church, isn't it? And to listen week in and week out. But I want to leave you with a challenge. The first challenge is this. Do you have this kind of belief? Do you have the kind of belief that is ready to bend your knee, to bow your head, and to say, Jesus, I receive from you whatever it is that you are calling me to do? You know, it's that kind of belief, really, that had to fuel this Samaritan woman as she went back to Samaria and told all of the townspeople. No doubt she was despised in that setting as well. And yet it didn't hold her back from sharing the good news. Come and see, she said. Jesus is calling his disciples to that kind of a faith, isn't he? He says, look, wake up, the harvest is ripe. Enter in, this is the work I've called you to do. 
No, don't hold back. Join in. And then there's this man who looks at what Jesus does. He believes and he obeys his word. Do you have the belief of a receiver? A humble recipient who asks for God and trusts God and follows him? Or is it that of a user? Do you stand above? Do you select which bits you want to follow? What time it's convenient to follow, like many in this Gospel of John, and eventually it leads to them turning back and and not following him. Jesus says to his disciples, will you two leave me? And what do they say? No. You alone have the words of eternal life. There's no way we're going to leave you. And I'm convinced that's what the Samaritan woman would say if she were asked the question too. You alone are the Savior of the world. You alone have eternal life, which satisfies my thirst. You alone can lead me to God himself. And I wonder this morning if you know this God today. If you do, rejoice. We have the Savior of the world. If you don't, seek Him. Because you don't know. You don't know what will satisfy your thirst. It is God Himself. It is the life that Jesus brings. And that's what all of us need. Whether we know it or not, we're longing for something more. And the Savior of the world, He has come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Gospel of John. Uh, We thank you that you led him to write down these words. Uh, These are words, they they are rich, they are dripping with life. And wow, we are blessed. Uh, We we just thank you that uh, you sent your Son into this world to save us. What a privileged people we are. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would lead us to follow him, to never turn away from him, knowing that he gives us life and he alone. Thank you that, um, that the Savior has come. Help us to believe, to obey, to follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.